Thank you for tuning in to the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is an online ministry striving to feed people the life-sustaining bread of God's Word. Bread of the Word exists for the reclamation of the Bible in the heart, mind, and walk of all the saints of God, for it is the Bible itself which is the ultimate standard by which people are to live and honor God. Thank you for tuning in. This is Bread of the Word. Welcome back to the Bread of the Word podcast, Reclaiming the Bible and Exalting Christ, one verse at a time. My name is Tyler, and I'm excited to be with you this Sunday afternoon as we continue our study in Romans. This is a great chapter. Romans 8 is called by many the greatest chapter of the Bible. And that's a very subjective term. That's certainly hard to differentiate what is the best chapter. You don't want to take out any of them. But Romans 8 is... It, it's fantastic. Romans 8 is the climax of the book of Romans. There is so much weight. There is so much liberation in Romans 8. It is a favorite of mine. Um, I, I'm excited to have the opportunity to share with you this Sunday a little bit about Romans 8. We will be breaking Romans 8 into two weeks. So this is going to be part one of digging into the greatest chapter of the Bible. And Romans 8, not only is it the climax, but it's right in the middle. So this is this is the halfway point in the book of Romans. Paul has, um, if you caught last week's episode, we talked about Romans 7 and Paul's struggle with sin. And he left off with this statement, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from the sins I can't seem to say no to? And Paul's response is Romans 8. And he starts off with verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Romans 8 is answering the question of how we can be holy, how we can be righteous, how we can combat. How do we mortify sin? It is by means that are not in the flesh. It is by the spirit. And Romans 8 is about the life we have in the Spirit of God, in the Holy Spirit. And Paul is giving time to encourage us in that life in the Spirit. Despite the wretchedness of our sins, despite our inability to make ourselves holy, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, is in us and is making us new. Gradually, incrementally, but he is making us new. And Paul goes on to elaborate some of the benefits of having that spirit. We live by the spirit. And we walk by the same spirit. We keep living by the spirit. 
Despite the struggle with sin in Romans 7, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation from the law. The usage of therefore to Greeks usually preceded a negative statement. But Paul uses therefore to usher forth one of the greatest positive statements in his letters. There is no condemnation. There is no penal consequence to us. We are not under the condemnation of the law because of what Christ has done, because of the Christ in whom we abide. This is the object of our faith. We place our faith in the God who redeems completely. Martin Luther once said that faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that the believer would stake his life on it a thousand times. This is the God we put our faith in, the God who saves completely, who redeems completely. His redemption is full. The law of the Spirit, it talks about, has set us free. The law of the Spirit is describing what the Spirit has done in us being as concrete as the law. The Spirit's work of regenerating dead hearts was not an opportunistic endeavor. God set out to do this on his own authority. Our spiritual resurrection is as hard set as the Mosaic law. God will do it and he has done it. And what has he done? He has set us free. He, set, he sent his own son in the form of human flesh to condemn sin from within. Christ judged sin from in its midst. At the cross, sin received the final verdict, and it was not good. Sin is finished. Its power has been rendered non-existent. God wins. And Christ accomplished this through the cross. He suffered and died for sin in order that, as it says, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, that we would, the law would be fulfilled in us. What God requires would be seen in us. Why? Because we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God has done something in us that enables us to do what we previously could not do. Pursue righteousness. Ezekiel 36, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put it within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now when Ezekiel says that, when he says a heart of flesh, we're not talking flesh in the same sense when Paul said, I am of the flesh. We're talking flesh, removing a heart that is dead and putting in a heart that is living, that is full of life. God puts a new heart within us that is not made of stone, but is made of living things. It's full of life. It says in Galatians 5, If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Other translations say, let us walk with the Spirit. In short, the Holy Spirit makes us alive and keeps us alive. The Spirit puts in us something new. We have God within us, and that comes with new wills, desires, and passions, which contradict our sinful flesh. This is what Paul was talking about in Romans 7, that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. I do the things I do not want to do and do not do the things I want to do. 
And this comes back into play here, Romans, 5, Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul talked in Romans 7 about wrestling with sin within all of us. Paul demonstrates here that that is real, that there is a very real struggle with our sin. None of us have arrived. We may sin differently, but we all struggle with sin, that there is a constant subduing of our sinful nature, of our flesh, of being surrendered to the Spirit, which enables us to live rightly. There are two worldviews in combat within us, the mind of the flesh and the mind of the spirit. The mindset of the flesh, it says, is hostile to God. That is our natural state, one where we are unable to please God. We are in such a state of sinful rebellion that we lack the moral ability to please God. We talked a couple of weeks ago about free will and how sin owns us, and our understanding of free will is bound up in a depraved mind. And Jonathan Edwards, in his book, The Freedom of the Will, which is a very helpful read. It's a hard read, but there are some very helpful insights in there. And one such insight is that man has free will, but not liberty. That he can choose things according to the strongest inclination at any given moment. But the natural carnal man, or woman, does not have the ability to choose against the strongest feeling. That our free will, when it comes to down to it, is bound up in feelings. That we won't choose things that are opposite our nature any more than a bird would choose to live in the water or a fish would choose to fly. It's the same concept. Something has to happen in us in order for us to willingly turn to God. We will not come to get Christ of our own desires. The flesh is too strong to do that. that. That sin nature that is ingrained in our DNA is too strong to allow us to go to Christ, who exposes sin, who purges out sin, who is holy, just, and righteous. We are in such a state of submission to that flesh that we cannot say with any authenticity that Jesus is Lord. That's not something we can submit to. Our flesh is at war with the freedom of God to be God. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one, speaking in the Spirit of God, ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. This, that verse right there, is, that's a special verse to me. Um, in a sense, I suppose you could say that's the verse that made me what you would call a Calvinist. That is the verse that convinced me that my salvation had nothing to do what, with what I brought to the table. That my ability to follow God didn't come from me. It wasn't because I prayed a prayer. It wasn't because I started going to church. It wasn't because of an emotional experience that I became a Christian. What made me a Christian, what put me in Christ, was that the Holy Spirit did something within me that allowed me to sit under 
the lordship of God. That something was put within me, in my nature. I was given a new nature by the Holy Spirit that it gave me the moral ability that enabled me to want God, to want the things of God, to want to pursue God. Um, John Owen once wrote that receiving Christ, as the Bible describes it, is not a one-and-done, I pray to prayer thing, but it is a constant abiding in Christ. In order to get to that constant abiding, we have to have a new nature because we are hostile to God. That is where we live. But the Holy Spirit changes our nature. It changes our mind to want the things of God, to desire to pursue God, pursue his righteousness, pursue holiness. But these are contrary to our nature. And so we cannot pursue these things without the Holy Spirit. We can't even submit to the fact that God is king, that Jesus is Lord, except that the Holy Spirit is already at work within us. So from that moment that we say our first prayer, we have already been born of the Spirit. As Jesus said in John 3, that something new has happened, that we have been born of the Spirit. And we've been brought to a point where we can enter the kingdom of God. Verse 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Although his spirit, or through his spirit, who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If the spirit dwells within us, the flesh is no longer our natural state. We are in Christ who brings life to our dead bones. When it says the Spirit of Christ, that's the Holy Spirit. They are both part of the triune God. It says in Acts 2 that God raised him up, being Christ, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Christ was raised from the dead by God and as God. And that same power is within us through the Holy Spirit, not in the sense that you and I can raise the dead. We cannot perform miracles. God does miracles. But the greatest miracle of God is turning people dead in sin into sanctified saints of God. The greatest miracle is salvation. It says in Ezekiel, can these bones live? When, when our culture is a culture of death, when our cities are the walking dead, when we are nothing but dead bones, can these bones live? Can we have any real life? By the grace of God, yes, we can live. These bones can yet live, not because of anything in the bones, but because of the God who brings life to the bones. If we live by the flesh, if we live by that natural state, we are the bones and we will only know death. If we remain in our depraved state, we will die. Every sinner must die. It says this ad nauseum through the Old Testament, that every sinner 
must die, that except ye repent, ye shall die the death. And judgment is sometimes called the second death. When we are judged in Adam, as we talked about in Romans 5, if we are judged according to our sin nature, we will experience judgment that is like a second death, that we will be cut off from the living. We'll be cut off from all the things that are in God. Not just life, but we'll be cut off from goodness, hope, peace, joy, fulfillment. All these things are only found in God. And so the epitome of eternal judgment is an existence devoid of those things. Ultimately, that is what hell is, is being separated from God and all that is in God. But, this is the good news. If we live by the Spirit and put the flesh to death, that is to mortify sin, we will live. We do not owe our flesh anything. You are not in bondage any longer to the flesh if you are in Christ. You are not no longer bound to the flesh or its vices. It doesn't have to be that way any longer because you're free. It says in Galatians that for freedom, Christ has set us free. We are free. There is freedom in Christ. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And of children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If we live by the Spirit, if our actions flow from the Spirit working in us, it is a proof that we are the children of God. We cannot do what pleases God on our own. It must come from the Spirit. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 26, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. John 1 says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The gospel is a gospel of adoption. We have been adopted into God's family. The Holy Spirit does not give us a new master, making us slaves of a different sort. We are the sons and daughters of God. If the Spirit in us does abide, and we cry to God, Abba, Father, which is a very intimate name for a father in Hebrew culture, that was the Hebrew equivalent of Daddy. That is the kind of relationship we have with God, that He is our Father. He is the perfect Father. We cry to Him, Abba, Father. That is the bond we have with him. Psalm 23, many know it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That is the kind of bond we have with God. It's like the sheep and his shepherd. A modern equivalent might be a little boy and his dog. That he feeds the dog out of his hand. and those, He is inseparable from his dog. He loves the dog with everything he has. That is the kind of bond we have with God. 
in Christ. We have been brought into a perfect family. Many of us come from families that are broken. And I don't believe there is a perfect family aside from God's family. God's family is the perfect family. The Holy Spirit gives us a family. Christ died to atone for sin. And he intercedes for our sin before the Father. The Holy Spirit puts in us a new nature. That we can pursue God. That we can live righteously. That we can see the ways God is at work. That we can see the glorious truths of scripture. And one of those glorious truths is that we have been brought into God's family. We are co-heirs then with Christ. We are beneficiaries of who God is. In the same way that Christ is. That we are co-heirs of, of Christ, with Christ. Not in the sense that we are gods. Don't, don't misunderstand me there. We are not gods. But if Christ was raised from the dead by God. If God raised Christ from the dead, he will raise us. If God was faithful to Christ, he will be faithful to us. It is the same thing. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. And fellow heirs with Christ, provided we, what, suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified. What? Suffer? That, that's a benefit. The Holy Spirit is not only for our benefit in the corner office. The Holy Spirit is not only profitable to us after climbing the corporate ladder. The gospel is in no way married to the American dream. The Christians in Rome that Paul is writing to were going to suffer. They may have to an extent, but they would were not being as persecuted as intensely then as they would be in a few years. But Paul assured them that suffering was coming. Persecution is coming. Consider the words of our Lord. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There is goodness in suffering and persecution. God is still good when we suffer. And it's important that we suffer in here, in what Paul is saying, because he's talking about life in the spirit, about dying to the flesh and living in the spirit. The flesh will not willingly submit to suffering. None of us would, in our natural state, would wake up in the morning and hope to suffer, hope to have calamity and difficulty. But the Spirit enables us to endure those things, to go through those things. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from his bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Romans begins by telling us that the whole earth tells us there's a creator. The very fabric of reality testifies to his goodness. It says in Psalm 19 that... The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. That the heavens are 
declaring without a voice, or speaking without words. The very fabric of reality testifies to, the, to God's existence, to his goodness, to the way he's or, ordered the world. The depravity we currently see is not the end game. God is the victor over sin. What sin and evil we experience and witness today is merely the result of evil coming apart at the seams. Those who are against Christ will bow. He is bringing an end to all wickedness gradually and methodically. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that he is bringing all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy is death. That the enemies of God will fall one by one by one until one is left. And it's death. And when death is defeated, it says Christ will deliver the world to the Father because it's done. And it will usher in the new heaven. There will be a glory that is revealed. That is the hope of what we believe today. The present suffering does not compare to the glory that is going to be revealed. Does not compare to the wonders of the new heaven that God is bringing. Creation is groaning for that day when sin is stripped away and seared from our consciences. When all will know God and righteousness reign is seen by all. Daniel 4 says, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And because that kingdom is here, that kingdom is on a forceful advance, and everything is being brought into subjection to the reign of Christ. Christ is king. Amen, hallelujah. And because of that, we can endure hardship. We can endure opposition because Christ is king. Some of you may recall the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. Three Jewish men who were in captive to Babylon. And the king of Babylon had set up a massive gold idol that all the people were to bow down and worship. And these three men said, no. We will not do that. And they were brought before King Nebuchadnezzar for questioning. And commenting on this story, the late Dr. R.J. Rushdooney makes this remark. And he says, The answer of these three rebels against the polytheism of continuity was clear-cut. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. He need not do so. Nor did they have such an assurance as to the divine response to their stand, irrespective of the consequences, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Verses 3, 17 through 18. Notice the challenge to Nebuchadnezzar's faith. These three men unquestionably hoped and prayed for deliverance, but they felt it imperative to make clear the transcendental an unbounded nature of God, and his radical discontinuity with his creation and his saints. They denied the continuity of God, either with Nebuchadnezzar or themselves. God was under no obligation to deliver them, and it was precisely this unbound God whom they worshipped and none other. Their faith in God was not bound on God 
protecting them. Their faith in God was bounded on who God is. And even if God allowed them to be cast into the fire and they died, God would still be God. God would still be on the throne and he would still be the God that they worshipped. I've heard it said that faith in Christ is a faith to live for him and a faith to die for him. And we can endure this because Christ is king. The Holy Spirit puts a new nature in us. And with that comes a boldness to follow God even when it's hard. Because the flesh doesn't like to do hard things. But through the power of the Spirit, we can do the hard things in service to Christ. Christ is king. And we follow him. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The saints of God can endure this evil with patience. They have their eyes set on that glorious future ahead. The whole earth will be restored, and the object of the church's hope will be seen as fact. This hope that Paul speaks of is unattainable without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Because of God, we wait with patience and diligence. Because of God, we work. We put our hands to the plow, and we keep on going. As it says in the Pilgrim's Progress, Get that light in your eye and go straight towards it. Don't go to the left or to the right. Stay on the straight path. Nehemiah 8.10 says, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. On this verse, Thomas Brooks comments, the joy of the Lord is your strength, Nehemiah 8.10. It is your doing strength, and your bearing strength, and your suffering strength, and your prevailing strength. It is your strength to work for God, it is your strength to wait on God, and it is your strength to exalt and lift up God, and it is your strength to walk with God. It is your strength to live, and your strength to die. And therefore, be sure to keep up your joy in God. There is a strength that is in God through the Holy Spirit that is, it does not compute to the carnal mind, to the mindset of the flesh. It doesn't make sense. Why would the people in the book of Nehemiah be so dead set on rebuilding Jerusalem, on rebuilding the temple walls? Why would they be so dead set on this in the midst of such opposition, such mockery? from their neighbors. How could they keep going? Because God is their strength. Specifically, the joy of the Lord is their strength. That what pleases God, what brings joy to God, what glorifies God, is the fuel to keep going. That God is most glorified and we are most satisfied in Him. The Westminster Confession, or Catechism, sorry, read, the chief end of man, meaning the highest and of the highest purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's chief end, not chief ends. So they're one and the same. 
that to glorify God and to enjoy God are one and the same. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength, that we delight in God. And when we delight in God, when God is sweeter than all the enjoyments of the world, he is glorified in that. He is glorified in our contentment, in our satisfaction in him, even when life is hard. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we, as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When we are weak, God is strong. The spirit he has placed within us is stronger than we are, and we cling to this. When we pray, it is the spirit empowering us to commune with the Father. In a sense, we are speaking from the power of God to God. In our natural state, we wouldn't pray. We wouldn't talk to God. There's nothing in me that empowers me to do so. That is only in the spirit. And in wrestling with this idea, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. God is the thing to which he is praying, the goal he is trying to reach. God is also the thing inside him which is pushing him on, the motive power. God is also the road or bridge along which he is being pushed to that goal. So that the whole threefold of life of the three personal being is actually going on in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. He is being pulled into God by God while still remaining himself. While C.S. Lewis, in some of his writings, he sounds like a mystic sometimes. One of the unique things about C.S. Lewis is he doesn't write like a theologian. He writes in very secular terms. And while he does make some mistakes, there is something interesting about the way he understands things. And this is one of these bits that I really like from him in his book, Mere Christianity, that we are drawn into God by God, and we pray to God by the power of God, because we cannot do anything without him. We have to abide in Christ, for apart from Christ, we can do nothing. When the Holy Spirit is promised in the book of John, in what they call the upper room discourse when Jesus is giving his final words to his disciples. He tells them the Holy Spirit is coming and it is better for you that the Holy Spirit comes than for me to remain. I mean, Christ has to go and atone for sin now and then he will ascend to the Father. But the Holy Spirit will remain. He is our helper. He is our advocate. And it was the enlightening of the Holy Spirit illuminating the truths of Scripture, illuminating them the things of God, enlightening the disciples of who God is, what he's doing, and what he has done, that put them in a spot to write the New Testament as the inspired word of God. They had to be dependent on what the Spirit was doing within them to do these things. They couldn't write the New Testament of their own devices. It wouldn't be the word of God. But these are the word of, words of God because of the Holy Spirit writing these things. That these men through the Holy Spirit wrote Romans and John and Matthew. 
and all these other twenty these twenty seven books of the New Testament are written by men through the Holy Spirit who were dependent on the Holy Spirit. In a sermon entitled God Glorified in Man's Dependence, Jonathan Edwards writes, There is an absolute and universal dependence of the redeemed on God. The nature and contrivance of our redemption is such that the redeemed are in everything directly, immediately, and entirely dependent on God. They are dependent on him for all and are dependent on him every way. The Spirit empowers us to do what is not natural to us. For to walk in holiness is to walk in complete dependence of God and what he's doing within us. We are dependent on the work of God through the Spirit to bring us to life and just as dependent on God through the Spirit to keep on living. Galatians 5.25 For if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. In summary of what has been said in these 27 verses, I can think of no better summary than my favorite hymn written by a man named Augustus Montague Top Lady called Rock of Ages about our dependence on God. And I want to read it to you. And this will be how we close out today. I want you to meditate to ponder the fact that we are dependent on God, that apart from him, we can do nothing. And that is precisely why nothing can pull us from it. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labors of my hands, can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. While I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, and see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. We are saved by God, from God, and through God. And we must abide in God. It is only in God that we can truly live. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Bread of the Word podcast. I pray that it has been beneficial to your walk with God and that he has called you into a deeper relationship and fellowship with himself. If you want to hear more from Bread of the Word, feel free to hit that subscribe button down at the bottom. Get notified about new content whenever we go live. Um, you can also watch us on Rumble Video and YouTube, or you can listen on your favorite podcast platforms. Um, you can also find us on social media if you want to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Gab. Links will be provided in the bio um, if you would like to check those out. And there will also be a message in the comment section 
um, a free gospel message for download entitled The Two J's, The Joy of the Potter and the Journey of the Clay. That is something that I've written, that is something God laid on me to write and then send out. And so I'm not making anything off of it. I'm not selling it. It is free for you to read and share. We need a further saturation of the gospel in our world, in our culture. And it starts right here. Bread of the Word Ministries exists for the reclamation of the Bible and the exaltation of Christ through the reading and teaching of His holy transformative word. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. God bless. Matthew 4.4 4.